you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Wasn't that fun? Praise God. That's the way Christmas should be, right? Singing carols and um, just enjoying this time together. And I'm so glad you're here, church family, and guests and friends. And um, really, this is the way Christmas should be celebrated. The kids dancing, singing songs, the monologues, and just remembering what the season's about. So praise God. And um, I want to share something from God's Word with you this morning. As, um, as I've been given this honor to share the word today. Um, you know, the story of Christmas is ultimately a story about good versus evil. Good versus evil. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not talking about Hallmark movie, Good versus Evil. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about with the bakeries? And the, what else is in there? The prince right? The bad guy, the other guy, right? All the, that's, I'm, talk, I'm really talking about good versus evil. And you don't need to look far to see that evil is all around us. Turn on the news, right? Sin is abounding all around us. And in that world, on that backdrop, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is good. Amen? He's good, and he's come to destroy evil. You heard the cliche earlier, I believe it was Tertia who shared it, the cliche of the season. What is it? Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Usually it comes from a disgruntled Christian, right, who's trying to fight the culture. It's not happy holidays. It's Merry Christmas, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, this morning, I want us to go beyond the cliche. Is that Okay. We're going to go beyond the cliche and look at what is the reason the Son of God appeared. The reason the Son of God appeared. I want to show you this from the Scriptures. The Apostle John says it this way. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here it is. Can you read it with me? The reason, come on, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. To destroy, that's the reason, friends and family. That's the reason for the season, the reason Jesus appeared, the reason he was born. Truly God and truly man was to destroy the works of the devil. But we don't talk about that a lot, do we? This is a Christmas verse. The reason he appeared, the reason he was, but we don't talk about this. And so this morning, in the brief time we have, we're going to look at this. How does the devil work? How did he work against Christ during Christ's life? How how did he work against Christ? And I pray that you would be blessed by what Christ has done. Like, I want you to be inspired, not by me, but by Christ's example in how he overcame the work of the devil, how he destroys evil in his life. And, And I pray that would be an example for each one of us. So, I want you to turn in your Bibles. This is a little different than how we've done it before. Usually we work through a a book verse by verse, as you know. 
Um, but today it's an Advent Sunday, so we're looking at three passages, just three passages. And I bet this morning when you woke up, um, if I asked you what, what passage would we begin with, I bet Revelation chapter 12 did not cross your mind. Is that fair? Okay, turn there, please. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. And yet it is here that we begin our, uh, our, our look at, at Christ's battle with the devil. Here with apocalyptic language that the Apostle John records for us. This is the first way that the devil worked against Jesus Christ. Are you ready? This is the first way, number one. And a way that I think he works against us even to this day. Here it is. He works through earthly powers. Can you say that with me? He works through earthly powers. Earthly powers. Let's take a look at this. Verse 1, Revelation 12. John sees a great sign appears in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, anyone who's read the book of Revelation, you know that this is a very, this is a book full of images, full of images and, and symbols and uh, we're not going to dissect that today, but I want you to get the big picture. If anyone recalls, do you remember Joseph's dream way back in Genesis? Joseph's dream where of his parents and his brothers bowing down to him. Well, well this is where that's coming from, that picture. The woman is depict, depicted here is Israel. It's Israel. Okay, that's the woman in, in, this, in, this, in this vision. Let's look what happens. Verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, we were blessed today, or this week rather, to welcome a new addition to our church, right? Who is it? Sanjay and Nazira's baby boy. You guys were praying, right? Yeah, praise God. It's a miracle of life, and we thank God for them. I know they're, they're at home. I mean, he's, just, he's a newborn. He's only a couple of days old, so they're watching him. So Sanjay and Nazira, wherever you are, we bless you. And, um, but this is a vulnerable state, isn't it? A pregnant woman about to give birth. It's a very vulnerable state. Um, and it is into this scene that John sees a second sign. Look at the second sign. Far more terrifying. Verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon. A great... Now, I, I, we didn't plan this before for all the choir to wear red. But uh, it worked, right? But no. A great red dragon. And see what it says. With seven heads and ten horns... And on his head, seven diadems. Now, this is not a Bible study. This is not a Bible study. And I know some of you have asked that after we finish Acts, we should go into the book of Revelation. And maybe, if God wills, we'll do that. Or we can ask Pastor Deo and Pastor Ronald after service about these heads and horns. Um, but we're going to leave that interpretation to later. Again, the big picture, if you skip down to verse 9, you'll see who is this great dragon? Who is it? Who is the great dragon? The devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. And if you look at verse 4, see what he does now. Look at the end of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Devour it. So that he might devour the child. So are you seeing the scene in your mind? Okay, there's a pregnant woman, she's about to give birth, and standing before her is this fierce, great dragon, the devil, waiting to devour the child. I just want you to get the sense of a mismatch, right? This is an utter mismatch, it, the sheer doom that's awaiting this child, right? Just, just think to yourself, how is this mother going to protect her child? 
with this dragon standing before. How is it going to happen? The odds seem stacked against them. The child's demise seems inevitable, right? Inevitable. Look at verse 5. She gives birth to, the male, to a male child, one, is to, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who is that, church? Who is this? None other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is the child that the dragon sought to devour. Okay? This is the child that the devil is after. He's trying to devour this child, Jesus Christ. And the question you may ask is, well, when did this happen? When did the devil try to devour Christ? Well, if you look at your Bible carefully, verse 4, you'll see there's a cross-reference there. And it points us to a very dark moment in the Christmas story, a moment that I don't think many of us talk about when we gather around the Christmas tree. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. And at this moment, the King Herod, King Herod, ordered that all the male children under two years old in Bethlehem and the surrounding region be what? killed. Be killed. I mean, this is horrific. We don't like to sit here on this verse, but this is truly horrific, church. This is a governmental order from a king, right? To kill, to massacre all these little children. Two years in... Why? Why? Why did Herod do that? To try to wipe out one child. Who was it? Jesus Christ. We don't like to think about it, but this is the first way that the enemy worked against Christ, and he still works against us today. He works through earthly powers, through anti-Christian earthly powers. Governments, do you know there are governments that persecute and punish righteousness? Of course you know that. There are governments that reward sinful behavior. There are governments that oppose God's word, that, that, that actually call God's word myth. I'm not talking, you, you know this. This is too close to home, isn't it? It's too close to home. But this is the first way that the devil works. He works through earthly powers. And, and, and this is how he worked against Christ. Through, through King Herod, kings like Herod, through institutions like the Sanhedrin, through, through Pilate and the Roman government itself. How many times, church, the devil tried again and again and again to devour this child, right? Throughout his life, the son of Mary, the son of God, which leads us to the question, how did Jesus overcome, right? How did he survive? Look back at verse 5. When the odds are stacked against us as Christians today, how do we, what do we turn to? Verse 5, it says, but her child, look at the last part, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And in that little phrase, church, 
John is compressing the entire life of Christ from his birth through his ministry, his death, resurrection, ascension. It's all put together. And what is John really saying? That the power of God protected that child and preserved his life. This is the power of God, church. The power of the almighty living God. The living God. This is the power. Power that that is able to protect and preserve a child in a manger. The very same power that will keep you and I today. That keeps you and I today. A power that no earthly authority can thwart, right? No Herod or king or prime minister or or president or superpower or dragon, heads, horns, and all. No one can overcome the power of the living God. Amen. Amen. And do you know what this means, church? I just want to apply this to you for a moment because some of you, you may be living in fear with all the changes that are happening all around us, right? What happens next? What's the government going to do next? What's going to happen to us as, as Christians, as churches? Will they try and shut us down? What will they do? And I want to tell you something. Do you know what this means, the power of God? It means that no one can take your life if God still has work for you to do. Can I say that again? No one in the universe can take your life if God still has work for you to do. How many times through the Gospel of John, um, John writes, it was not yet his hour, right? It was not yet Christ's hour. Yes, church, this is the power of God. Spurgeon says it this way, I am immortal till my work is done. Till my work is done, no one can touch me. That's the life of a Christian. That's the life of a Christian. If you're breathing today, you still have work to do. That's why God is keeping you. He will keep you. I want you to let that sink in. No dragon can devour Christ or his church. Amen? Amen. That's the first point. So, the devil works through earthly powers. And the point to us today is know that the power of God is greater. Okay, power of God's greater. Number two, about 30 years later, about 30 years later, after his birth, um, the man Jesus would once more come face to face with the devil. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? In the wilderness. You could turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew, this is the second passage. We're looking at three today. Matthew chapter 4. The second way that the enemy works, here it is, he works through temptations. Okay, say that with me. He works through, he works through temptations, temptations. Let's take a look. Verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. There's an understatement, right? Anyone fasted 40 days and 40 nights? Of course, he was hungry, right? He's truly man. He was hungry. So the discipline of fasting is probably the last thing that you guys want to hear this morning, right? Right, Christmas Eve? Come on, right? For some of you, the turkey is already in the oven, right? It's waiting for you to eat it tonight, right? So, so, so I'm not going to dwell on that, but it is an important discipline, not to, not to make light of it. But I want to draw your attention to something else. Remember, our first forefather, Adam, fell by eating. He fell into sin by eating. But our second Adam, 
Christ denied himself food and, and relied on his father to sustain him. You see the contrast, right, between our first father and Christ. Forty days and forty nights. Do you realize that's one day for every year the Israelites spent where? In the wilderness. In the wilderness where they failed God time and time again, right? And here's Christ. One day for every year they spent. Though they too had to rely on God. What did they get every day? Manna, right? They too had to rely on God for manna from heaven. But this is where Jesus was. Verse 3, and the tempter comes to him, and here's what he says. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to turn into loaves of bread. Okay? So remember, he's hungry. He's hungry. And I want you to understand something here. Don't forget, this is a man who is about to turn water into wine. Right? John chapter 2, the very first very first miracle of Jesus. This is a man who very shortly after that would feed thousands upon thousands of people by multiplying a few fish and, and loaves. So I, want you to, I, I don't want you to forget, Jesus is not unable to do this. This is well within his power to turn a few stones into bread. But look at how he answers. Look at verse 4. See how Christ answers. He answered, it is written. It is written. Yes, he was hungry. But what does he say? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to remember this verse very carefully, church, because some of us think that temptation is just a conversation between the bad me and the good me. Have you ever thought that way? Okay, the bad me is saying do this, the good me is saying don't do this, and the one who's louder or the one who, who's more persuasive wins, right? Temptation is not just a conversation between Jesus and the devil. That's not what it is. At the heart of every temptation... Think about the last time you were tempted and you fell into sin. What, boil it down. What was the real issue? What do you live by? That's the question. In every temptation, what do you live by? Do you live by bread? Do you live by your hungers? Do you live by um, uh, uh, your, your fallen heart's desires? Or do you trust and obey every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that what temptation is? It is. This was the heart of it, and Jesus could see through it. Jesus knew. He's quoting um, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 here. He's quoting Scripture. He's showing us how to fight your temptation. Are you struggling with temptation? Here is his example. How does he destroy that work? By quoting Scripture. Look at verse 5. The devil's not done. Temptation number 2. Devil takes him up to a holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And, and I want you to, to just pause here and just, I need to say this. The patience of Jesus, right, to put up with the devil. Like, you see, the devil took him. He just, you know, just kind of took him along. Come on, come on, John, let's go. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's just like, he's, he's just, Jesus is letting, the, letting Satan do his worst, right, for our sake. The patience of Jesus. But look what Satan does. Verse 6, and Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. From the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself down. 
And look at this. He said, well, look, this is the devil speaking. What does he say? For it is written. What is he doing? Two can play the game, right? The devil shows us that he knows the Bible too. He knows it quite well, actually. Church, I want you to realize, don't be naive. The devil has known the Bible from the very beginning. In fact, he's been twisting God's words from the Garden of Eden. What did he say to Eve? Did God really say? Remember that? And so here he is taking Psalm 91 and just throwing it back at, at Jesus. But the deceiving thing about this, and, and maybe if you don't know the Bible well, you may fall for this, but if you really see what he's doing, Psalm 91 is all about trusting God. But what is the devil trying to get Jesus to do? To trust God? To test God. That's subtle, right? That's a very subtle way to tempt someone. And if you didn't know Psalm 91, you are hopeless in that battle. But this is what the devil does. He rips verses out of context and tries to get you to be deceived. But Jesus says in verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Hey, devil, I'm not Adam. I'm not like Adam. Adam, maybe, maybe Adam didn't know, right? The word, Adam didn't trust God. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he quotes another scripture back at the devil, Deuteronomy 6, 16, Isaiah 7, 12. I hope you see what's happening here. Jesus is interpreting scripture with what? Scripture, right? The devil throws Psalm 91. Jesus throws back Deuteronomy 6, 13. What am I trying to say? Jesus knew the word, church. You know he's only 30 years old. How many people are 30 years old or around 30? Okay, 20 to 40. Hands up. We know who you are. We can tell, right? Just, just, it's okay. Don't be ashamed, right? Right? Jesus was around your age, but he knew the Bible. He's quoting from the Torah. He's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting from the historical books. He's quoting from the prophets. 78 times in the New Testament alone, Jesus quotes the scriptures from memory. From memory. If you ever needed a plug to come to Bible study, like this is it, right? Church, we can't fight temptation with a Sunday school knowledge of the Bible. We can't do it. The devil's smarter than that. He's smarter than that. Finally, verse 8, the devil takes him to a very high mountain. Look at this. Shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Just put yourself in Christ's shoes. Imagine someone offering you all of this, everything you could ever want. He says, it's on a platter. Here it is. All you have to do is worship me. The desires of the world, right? Desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life. And I want you to notice in verse 9, if you can keep, yeah, verse 9, thank you. Um, what is Jesus, what, what is the devil actually doing? Do you know that Jesus hasn't started his ministry yet? God sent him to do a, a number of things, right? To teach, to, to, to perform miracles, right? He has so much work to do ahead of him. And what is the devil offering him in verse 9? A shortcut to glory. Do you see that? Hey, Jesus, I have a bypass for all that work God's calling you to do. Don't worry about it. It's all, I'll give you the kingdoms and the glory now. 
I can give it to you now. You don't have to do all that work. And that's the temptation he gives. And friends, this is all it takes. If your heart is after this world and the fading glory that's here, this is what the devil requires, your worship. That's all it takes. You can make more money, right? A lot of people make more money than Christians. We give 10% to the church after all, right? <laughs> at least they have the 10% on us, right? You can make more money. You can play the fool with God's laws. You don't have to be bound by the conscience of your conscience. You can have all the temporal pleasures this world can offer. You can climb to the top of the highest mountain. Just picture Everest. You're at the top of Everest looking out, and all that glory can be yours. That's what the devil is saying. But Jesus saw through the lying, empty words of the devil because he knew the Bible. He knew the Word of God. And what does he say in the last verse? Then Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Look at your Bible for a second. Um, where are those quotations from? Do you realize that's not even one verse? That's two verses. The first part of the verse is from Deuteronomy 6.13. The second part is from 1 Samuel 7 verse 3. So, so he says, you shall worship the Lord your God. That's, that's one verse, Deuteronomy. And then him only shall you serve comes from 1 Samuel 7.3. He's synthesizing the scriptures, church. He's doing systematic theology, right? He's taking scriptures from different parts of the Bible and he's applying it to the, to, to the circumstance. Church, if you're here this morning and you're looking, at, looking at back at 2023 and you're thinking, why do I keep falling into these sins? Anyone there? Don't raise your hands, right? Why am I still stuck in these sin issues? I, I want to break free. I want to be free of this. I want to be different. I want 2024 to be different. If that's you, Christ's example is clear. Store up God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. That's Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 11. Store up his word in your heart. That's how you Stop yourself, prevent yourself from sinning against him. And so the next time the temptation comes, you're home all by yourself and a pornographic image pops up on the screen, on your phone or on your device. The next time that happens, you will say, be gone, Satan, for it is written. And you quote scripture at him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is the one I, I've committed to memory. No temptation has overtaken me, Satan, that is not common to man. And my God is faithful. He will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. And with the temptation, he will provide what? The way of escape. So that I may stand up under a church I can testify this works. This works. Bring, this is what Christ is showing us. This is the example when temptation comes. Bring the scriptures to bear. Can't do it if you don't know the scriptures. Know the scriptures so you can bring it to bear. How many hours, right, we spend binge watching or scrolling socials or playing Sudoku. If you don't have time to read the Bible, get an audio book. You know, there are free audiobooks of the Bible now, 
right? Talk to the, our librarian. Talk to our tech ministry. Andrew, is that okay? Right? You'll find them, a CSB or an ESV. It's free, church. You can listen while you go to work. You can listen while you're doing your chores. 2024 will be no different if you don't choose to do something different. Right? Nothing will change if we don't decide to follow Christ's example and know God's word. Know God's word. So, that's the, so the first point was to know the power of God. The second is to know the word of God. And finally, we come to the last point, okay? As Christ comes to the end of his life on earth, just before he goes to the cross, Satan comes one last time in the most unexpected way. Okay, are you ready? Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. I'll go there with you. Matthew 16. And I'll give you the point and then we'll look at it, okay? The third way that the devil works is through the influence of others. Can we say that together? Through the influence of others. Let's follow along. Verse 21, okay? Um, Here we go. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Are you following? Okay? Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, to rebuke Jesus. Okay? He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, and this is, look what Jesus says. He turned, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay? Now, my point today is not that after the service you should go around and start greeting each other with, get thee behind me, Satan. Okay, that's not the point. That's not where we're going. Okay? I want to hear just Merry Christmas is enough, right? Not, none of these get thee behind me. But if you read the verses leading up to this verse, verse 23, look at your Bible, Matthew 16. You will realize, do you know what just happened just before this? Jesus actually blesses Peter. In the verses leading up to this text, Jesus actually lifts Peter up and praises him and says, blessed are you, Peter, because Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ. So he was lifted up in the presence of all the disciples, and and he's given the keys to the kingdom. That's not an expression. That's literally in the text. He's given the keys to the kingdom, the authority of an apostle. He's a leader in the early church. Folks, Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was part of the inner three, you know that? He was one of the closest friends of Jesus. And, and, and I know he had his flaws. We all have flaws, right? Don't go judging Peter today, right? We all have flaws. But this is a man who believed in Jesus and who went on to write several books in the New Testament, right, that you still read today. And yet Jesus turns and says to him, get behind me, Satan, right? So you've got to ask the question, what happened here? Well, what's going on? In verse 21, Jesus tells his disciples what is about to happen, okay? I need to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, die, 
And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. He's basically foretelling exactly what's about to take place, right? He's prophesying to them. And in verse 22, Peter isn't having it, right? Peter's not having that at all. I don't know what, what got into him. Maybe because Jesus lifted him up, right? He felt, you know, a little bit bold. He felt, okay, you know what? Actually, you know what, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to help to sort this out for you, right? And, and, and he actually, he has the audacity to take him aside and rebuke him. Do you know what that reminded me of? You know when your parent takes you in church to a, to a corner and scolds you for something you said over here? Right? Like, church, that still happens to me. Okay, I have parents like that. I love them. They're here. But that happens, right? But this is, this is audacious, what Peter is doing here, to take the Son of God and say, you know, this shall never happen to you. For all that Peter was commended for, here's my point, for all that he got right about Jesus, in his small little mind, suffering, dying, and rising just could not have been God's will for Jesus' life. He, 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 he couldn't see that. that. That can't be God's plan. That could not be God's purpose for the Son. And in verse 23, look at verse 23, Jesus sees through what's happening. He understands exactly what's happening. And he sees something that I think many of us would have totally missed. That at that moment, Peter was actually being a mouthpiece for who? For Satan. For Satan. Trying to hinder the Son of God from accomplishing his God-given mission. And I want you to wrestle with this, church, because I don't think Peter meant to do this. Do, do you think in the morning, that morning, Peter woke up and said, you know what, I, I'm going to see how I can be a stumbling block today to Jesus. Do you think he did that? Do you think he woke up and said, you know, I'm going to see how I can try and stop Jesus from doing God's will for his life? No. Why did Peter say what he said? Why do you think? He was just concerned, right, for his friend. I don't want, you, I don't want to see you suffer, I don't want to see you go through that, right? I'm concerned for your safety. I'm concerned for your well-being. But in Peter's human thinking, he could not see God's will. And here's my point, okay? Whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, to try to stop Jesus Christ from doing the will of God, or for that matter, today, knowingly or unknowingly, for any of you to try to stop or hinder or, or turn someone away from the will of God for their life is to do the work of the devil, of the evil one. And I had to sit on that for a bit because that's very convicting and it's kind of scary. This is the third way that the, devil, that the devil works, church. He works by the influence of others. And I'm not talking about, like, non-believers out there in the world. This is Peter we're talking about. Even the most well-meaning people in your life, if their minds are not set on the things of God, that's, that's that verse, verse 23, we can be a hindrance to one another. We can actually be a hindrance to each other. And that scares me because we counsel each other all the time, don't we? In church, right? Anyone received counsel at church? Right? We give advice to each other. 
right? We, we, we ask about work. You ask about, you know, where, should I buy a house? Should I lease a house? Should I do this ministry? Should I start this mission? Should I, what about this relationship in my life or these financial decisions or, or you know, when to have a child or, or how to parent your child? All these things, even the television show that I tell you I'm watching right now that leads you to go home and spend hours, days, or weeks glued to a screen. Think about all the ways in which we may mean well in what we say or do. But if our, if our minds are set on the things of man and not the things of God, we can be, our words can be a stumbling block, right? For each other. Because here's the truth, church. Suffering, dying, and rising from the dead was God's plan for Jesus. Amen? That was God's plan. You may not understand it, Peter, right? You may not get it. You may not have figured it out. You, you, if it was up to you, maybe you would do it a different way. But guess what? My thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord, Isaiah 55. Neither are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Aren't you grateful, church, that this is true? This is true today. God's ways, God's thoughts are higher than ours. And so I have to be honest, as I was preparing this, I had to stop and just pray and ask God, God, help us to set our minds. Help me to set my mind on the things, on your things, on the things of you. Help me, Spirit, help me to pray, not for my will to be done. We always, we're always praying that. We may not say it, but, but often what we're praying is, God, let my will be done. What I want to see happen, what I think should happen, you can see. That the Christmas story is ultimately a story about good versus evil. And I want us to move past the cliches this Christmas. The reason the Son of God appeared, not just the Jesus is the reason for the season. No, the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the... Oh, come on. 40 minutes in. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy... The works of the devil. The works of the devil. When he works in your life through earthly powers, remember that the power of God is greater. When he works through temptation, know the word of God like Jesus did. And when he works through the influence of others, set your mind on the things of God and not the things of man. This is how the Christ of Christmas fought the works of the evil one during his life until finally on that glorious day, he died on that cross, canceling the entire record of sin that stood against you. Think about all the things you have done, all the sin you have committed in your life to this point, and all that you're going to commit in the years ahead. He canceled the entire record Nailing it to the cross, disarming the enemy of our souls, triumphing over him in the resurrection, so that one day, church, soon and very soon, all the carols we sing will be fulfilled.
Isn't that precious? Satan will be vanquished. Jesus will be king over all. And evil will be no more. This is the tidings of comfort and joy. Worship team, if you can come. Tidings of comfort and joy. Church family, I want to take this moment just to say a very, from my family to yours, a very Merry Christmas. And um, to those of you who are here as guests, I'm so glad you joined us. Um, And if there's anything I wish you would know, I pray that you'll know this season, is that good does triumph over evil in Christ. In Christ. Why don't you stand as we close um, with this carol, and I'll just pray for us, and and we'll sing. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this wonderful service. We've had a great time singing and, and watching and learning and listening and hearing your word. I pray now that you would help us, O oh God, to adore and to lift up the Christ who came to destroy the works of the evil one so that we too, O oh God, as we fight the good fight, Lord, through the different ways the enemy works, help us to be inspired by your example, by Jesus' example, looking forward to that day, waiting for the day when you return and bring us home. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.